This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. because I also think in terms of investing, micro-neighborhood is more important. And I even highlight a dude who's doing rental arbitrage here who has a similarly-looking Airbnb in the same neighborhood, Poblado. He has five bedrooms. He's got a hot tub just like me. Um, But he's making one-third of what I'm making. And I believe it's because of his micro-neighborhood. He's 15-minute drive from Parque Jetas. I'm a five-minute walk. And it's that, you know, our guests, they, that our guests don't want to be 15 minute walk, they 15 minute drive. They want to be five minute walk. Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Daniel Rustin, aka Danny Boo Boo. He's the author of Optimize My Airbnb and the new book, Profitable Properties. Danny, how's it going, man? Hey, it's going good. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Absolutely. So Optimize My Airbnb is how people know you best. That's the name of your uh, YouTube channel, your uh, Instagram handle as well, different platforms. And I think this is your your, your second like big book launch. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Profitable Properties? That's correct. On October 31st, I was in Brazil and I decided just to, by divine inspiration, because I never thought I'd write a new book after I optimized your Airbnb. It was like hard work. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I did good, thank God. But I never, I didn't think I'd write another book. Just too much hard, very hard work. So, uh, I, and so I decided then to write it. And I was originally planning to publish it by the end of January, just to write kind of an update to the last book. But after I got done with the outline, I realized like, oh, this is a, this is a new book. And it turned out to be 400 page, like encyclopedia. And it takes a more overall look for people who are interested in short-term rentals, not just Airbnb. Airbnb is going to be a part of it, but I'm talking more about like, for example, the, the first main section is how to find profitable markets, how to identify micro neighborhoods i call them and you know run the numbers on properties and so that's out as of it's it's out it's out baby it's out baby awesome and i guess for continuity should mention that you were one of our very first guests on the my latin life podcast i think literally episode three because we had the og vance then we had mark solo the naughty nomad and then i think you were episode three so we appreciate your support from the beginning and now here we are uh, a year and a bit later and, and thought it would be a good chance to to catch up and see see what's new i'm honored to be mentioned in in the same uh sentence as those those other fellows <laughs> well we dude uh having you on and the early guests really helped us continue to get good guests over time and uh i, I think we've had a pretty cool spectrum of guests, you know, travelers, investors, CEOs, digital nomads, things like that, authors. So I I try to mix it up. You do indeed. And you do that well. And I'm glad to be back. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to think where to start because, you know, we were, we were spitballing topics and there's uh, so much I'd love to discuss with you, but I guess um, maybe just catch us up with like, what's, what's the past year been like? I know you've been mostly in Medellin, but also uh, doing a little bit of traveling. I remember you were, <laughs> I have one thing for you. I remember you were like in, uh, you were in Madrid in one of the big parks there with your shirt off and you're like, you're doing like selfie videos and you're like, why am I the only one with my shirt off here? And I'm like, Oh my God, dude, you, you can't really do that in Spain. <laughs> Which still is surprising to me. Somebody, I don't know if I posted a follow-up story to that, but somebody replied to my story and said, no one has their shirt off because it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and so I confirmed that with, Two other people, when I was like just you know randomly walking around, I, I had to ask. Two other people, sure enough, said, "Yeah, it is illegal." And the first, the day I arrived in Madrid was the Pride Festival, and I'm from San Francisco, so when there's Pride Festival, you know, guys having their shirts off is the least of what's going on. And I noticed on Pride Festival in Madrid, nobody had their shirt off. Like this was the first thing; everyone was clothed. I was like, "What's going on?" And so that that was my first like. Uh, kind of odd interaction with you know not and keep in mind the weather was like 105 degrees so shirtless weather for sure and uh i guess for people unfamiliar with what you look like you're like extremely jacked for for like what's your height and weight i'm uh in five i'm thinking in centimeters and, and kilograms i'm 511 and i weigh 195 pounds Oh, I thought you weighed way more than that, but you can bench like insane. I look bigger. Um, I've heard that. Like, uh, I look bigger than I am. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure why I have a, I've got good, um, chest and trap muscles. Good, good genetics there. So maybe that's why, <laughs> but you know, what's funny with the Spain thing is that it, it helped me connect the dots because in Latin America, you can't really walk around with your shirt off. Um, you know, I, I, I would try to push the limits and I'd, I'd be going to parks or whatever, like go, going hiking. You'd think, you'd think if you go hiking in Latin America in a trail with your shirt off, you'd think that would be chill. But then you reach some sort of, you know, post where there's a, a security guy and they always say, put your shirt back on. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing ever. But it must be, a, you know, something that's a byproduct of Spain uh, uh, that com comes from the old country. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it also wasn't 40 degrees. I mean, it was like so hot out there. I kind of had to take my shirt off. I was like, it's just too hot here. You know, it gets into the, or 40, hundred degrees here. It gets into the eighties, maybe the nineties, but at least it's more moderate. Yeah. They have some weird culture about, you know, they're, uh, they all wear pants too. Pants mm -hmm. and no sandals. I don't know about pants. I know all throughout Latin America, no sandals here in Colombia, specifically in Medellin is, a sin it's an absolute no-no it disqualifies you from inclusion in regular society if you're wearing sandals outside the home and speaking of medellin so you have uh the property there that you publicize a lot the belmonte penthouse which is uh i guess a four-bedroom airbnb and kind of your uh highlight property uh there when when did you launch the belmonte because i feel like it was just shortly before we had you on the previous time the belmonte penthouse is not only a four bedroom four bathroom uh airbnb but it is the 
best short-term rental in the world. Okay. <laughs> I'm smiling when I say that. Uh, I, I bought this in August 2021, but I, I was looking for it since December 2020. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right because I think we recorded the first one in December December 21 or January 22, and I guess you're probably still putting the – the final touches on it and getting those first, uh, getting those first reservations. Yeah. First reservations came at the very end of 2022, 21, uh, 2021. Yeah. Right. Right. And so here we are, you know, uh, 15, 16 months later and it's a resounding success. I'm pretty sure you have, you know, 95% occupancy and it's, uh, been a, been a huge ROI for you. Yep, I'm at. I just opened it up. I'm at uh, 5.0 rating still and uh, 78 reviews. So it's going very well. And uh, I know in the new book, Profitable Properties, you mentioned how, um, and and I'd love for you to expand on this. But you talk a little bit how you don't need a million Airbnbs. You need uh, a concentrated number of excellent and highly profitable Airbnbs. Yeah, it's that's that's what separates me from other gurus, Airbnb experts, short-term rental experts. If you look, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just my preference. I'm not interested in getting a portfolio of other people's money. You know, ten, twenty, a hundred listings, um, because that's actually it's just you know you have to start managing teams. It's things that I don't want to do. What I much prefer to do is find weight and find the best deal. So the Belmonte penthouse, I'm getting, there. there's a common measure in real estate. It's called cash on cash return. Mm-hmm. And the on short-term rentals, if you're getting 20%, 30%, 40% is like an, like a, you know, very rare. It's, it's extremely rare, 40%. I'm getting on the Belmonte penthouse 90%. And so it's because what I'm doing is if, if you're if you're trying to get a million listings, you're basically looking for minimums. Our minimum is 20% return, et cetera, and let's go. Let's buy it, let's move, let's go. And you you hear that echoed a lot. Hey, you don't have time to like sit back and wait. You know, someone else is gonna grab up that deal. Part of that has to do with that I invest internationally. Although this year I plan to go to the US and and maybe buy one there. It depends, but there's so many benefits of inter- investing internationally that I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of my search in the U.S., I realize it's just not, you know, I'm not interested in 30% return. I'm interested in 90% return. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely an interesting topic in terms of uh, investing in the U.S. versus Latin America. Do you think Latin America, by definition, kind of has higher returns or do you just like the adventure aspect of it? It has higher returns, period. It, it, I mean, it must have higher returns as well. You're in a third world country. You have cor- currency exchange risk. Um, there's no, there's no, there's, the financial system is much less developed. So there are sometimes I see, you know, investment deals and they're, they're advertising like, you know, 10%, 12% return in like in third world countries and in Latin America. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not, seems like a great deal. It's not because, compensating you for the risk. 
Exactly. It's not compensating you for the risk. Why don't, if you're going to get 10 12%, why don't you just do that in the U.S.? Where you can put down five percent, so it doesn't really make sense to me. But and I and I've known from it's not only real estate as well. You know, there's other because the labor here is so cheap as well. That's a big that's a big part of it. Um, cheap labor, whether you're renting, whether you're doing a cafe or a, or a short term rental. And so, it, like, people do have to scale in some way, though. You're going to have to buy another property. You're going to have to grow, right? And so. How do you how do you kind of think about that? You just want to do like one Airbnb per country and just kind of keep it chill. And it's it like it's basically just like you and the cleaning lady almost. Or I guess you have a property manager, or not even because it's like keyless entry. Yeah. So any of your audience who is it is keyless entry, but I have concierges that that do a live check in. So here's a hack for everybody: your cleaner is your natural property manager. Nowadays, with the tools and the automation, you should save money on the property manager because most people, I talk with hosts every single day, they, they, and a lot of times they complain about the property managers. I rarely hear a compliment about the property manager. And so property management is difficult, by the way. I have my own company, and I used to do it on a larger scale back in the day. But I teach, hey, remote management. Now, you don't, you still need someone on the ground. But that person should be your cleaner. They're already at your house. Why not have them start paying your bills, have them start coordinating maintenance, have them start um, dealing with guest issues? It just makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of the big value adds of the, the property manager is some of them do the, pr the pricing and they kind of get involved in making sure that you have, you know, 100% occupancy and kind of dynamic pricing. But with you being such an expert in that, I guess... You do the pricing and then all you kind of need is someone to kind of do the low value manual tasks. That's a good, that's an, a good and interesting point. And it's true, but the value there is much less than you, than you um, expect. So me kind of being on the inside, I know that property managers sell, Hey, we price your listing and they do. But I think what people, what, you know, homeowners, potential short-term rental owners think is that, okay, this company is going to do like deep market research and they're going to be monitoring my price on a daily basis and changing it. That's not actually what happens. In fact, pricing is a big complaint of people who use property managers. So, uh -huh. yeah. And pricing isn't that hard, actually. In, in my new book, Profitable Properties, I have a section, uh, part five, pricing, and it lays out my strategy. And um, I talk about it. It's it can look complicated from the outside, but I have a two-step two step strategy that teaches you basically it's more – I bring it down to an X, if X, then Y. We, we price our listings based on the occupancy, the future occupancy. Okay, if I want my future occupancy, just to give a quick, easy example, if I want my future occupancy to be about 50%, 30 days into the future, and it's 30%, then I need to lower my pricing. If I if it's seventy percent, then I need to raise my pricing. So there's some rules around that, so you don't have to really sit there and think like, well, I don't know what to price my. I have no idea. Well, now you do. What, what's your occupancy goal, and what's your what's your actual occupancy? Adjust based on that. Got it. it takes thirty it. seconds a week. Yeah, I don't want to get too too in the weeds because we'll be linking up the book and and people can get that. I want to just like keep things fun. You have so much. There's so much we can talk about in terms of like international travel, digital nomad stuff. I did have one random question though. Which is, 
do you then pay your cleaner uh, for every visit or do you just kind of hire them as a monthly employee? Because you can get a monthly employee in Columbia for, I don't know, 400 bucks a month, something like that. It, it's on an individual basis. For me, I pay her per cleaning. I pay her um, good per cleaning and that includes other things. You know, she, she, she also cleans, she does, she cooks breakfast, for example, uh, and she'll do everything that I said earlier, maintenance, pay bills, replenish consumables. Um, if you hire them, you have to be careful. There are some strict um, employee co- uh, employer laws here in Colombia, which like if she is, um, it, it could get pretty aggressive. Like even if she's not at work and she's like kind of maybe coming to work or maybe doing something for work and she gets like, you know, accident or something, um, I could be and probably would be liable for, for like obscene amounts. Um, so that's a risk if you go the employee route. Of course, you know that that's a whole different topic. But Got it. Um, yeah, all right. So keep him as a contractor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And do you think uh, for the next step? You mentioned the U.S., but do you think you would double down and get another one in Medellin, or would you try to diversify and maybe do one in Tulum or or somewhere else? I would. Uh, yeah, you, you, you touched on this, um, or, or just a second ago, like, you know, people want to expand and whatnot and that's true. They do for sure. Once you start short-term rentals and, and you, and you, and you learn, learn from me and become good, you're going to probably want another one. Cause it's really good money actually. But my only point is like, I think of this, like, uh, just as like a hobby, let's think of it as a hobby. It's like not, I dedicate a hundred percent of my time to it. Obviously I dedicate a lot of my time cause it's, it's involved with my work, but like, it's a hobby in that, okay, this deal, I looked for this deal, it came up, I made a purchase. Now, you know, I have other investments and I have other sources of income. Um, and am I looking for another house? Yeah, passively. If something comes up, I keep my eyes open, but I'm not actively looking for one and, and feeling forced to buy one. You know, we, we might be going into a depression, which is a time I would buy because the deals would be good, good enough to make me, you know put that as a focus. But right now I'm not sure where, where I'll buy. I'm actually kind of interested because I'm going to be looking at, I'm going to be applying, you know, the principles I outline in the book and I'm looking through mm-hmm. all of the U S cause I'm not, it, it could be anywhere in the U S and I'll be identifying which ones are the, I think the most profitable and for what reasons. What's your hunch? Is it like new Orleans and Nashville and these sort of party cities to kind of re re redo the formula you had before? No, my, I break down markets into two, a discovered and undiscovered. And the ones you said are discovered and it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that there's a lot more competition. There's also a lot more guest arrivals coming there and known. But, um, I, I think what I would probably end up doing is getting an undiscovered market, which doesn't mean it's like unknown. It's just like maybe locally discovered. It it probably has, uh, it's probably like a, like a destination where there's a few big cities within drivable distance and it's somewhat of a fly-in destination as well. Um, you know, it has a, it has various draws. There could be what, whatever that may be for hiking or like parks. Maybe there's like some medical tourism going on with sports park, big malls. I don't know what that, what that is, but I'm more than that. I'm not sure. And so what would you say to people who, who want to get into this game? I think everyone has stayed in Airbnbs. Everyone is kind of passively interested in real estate and just a lot of people haven't pulled the trigger. 
on having a short-term rental, especially in Latin America. I'd say most digital nomads that have been doing this for at least two years are, are all like, damn, I need to get an Airbnb because they see the difference between the local rent price and what it costs an Airbnb, how a local rent might be like 500 bucks. And on an Airbnb, it's 1500. It's very easy to sort of, you know, put two and two together. If you, what, what I would do if, if you're like kind of mostly unfamiliar with this is don't rush it, but have that as a goal in your mind. And if, as long as you have that as a goal in your mind, you'll start noticing things that you otherwise may not have noticed. Like, okay, I want to invest in Medellin and you'll start noticing different things, different houses. You'll start noticing for sale signs and where your guests might go. And you'll start noticing the foreigners versus the locals you know, where's the foot traffic going? Just like, uh, I think, you know, the, the profits are in the, the subtleties, the details. And like, because I think I'm doing so well with this is because I was very familiar with the city. I knew exactly where the guests wanted to come. I was after all, like, you know, a first time guest back in 2014 here. So I, I felt that I knew exactly what the guests want, where they wanted to be. And uh, I guess we haven't mentioned it, but it's definitely part of your kind of tagline that you've spent over 2,000 nights in Airbnbs personally as a guest. That's true. 2,000 nights. Airbnb actually just updated their their um, platform, which they should have done a long time ago, which is it shows your recent trips, which is kind of cool. I think they should like add a map. And you can color in the map when, when you stayed in an Airbnb in each country. <laughs> do they have a total or do you, you're, you're manually calculating that? No, this was me manually calculating it. I wonder what I'd be at. Definitely in the hundreds. They should definitely show that because that kind of gamifies it a little bit. Like, yeah. The, you know, yeah, I think they should so. give a, yeah, they, they should uh, incentivize you, right? Like hit a hundred nights, hit a thousand nights, get a discount on the the stupid fees or something like that. <laughs> yeah, they've got super host, so isn't it just natural to do super, super guest? guest? Right, because then you know they're a good guest. They're not there to party and tear the place apart. And it's like, look, once you hit a thousand nights, maybe we'll drop it from you know ten percent processing fee to. to there 8%. we go. I don't know. Yeah. Guests, I think they're missing a huge opportunity of um, guest loyalty, and what you just said is is part of it. Guest loyalty. That, I don't know why. Why would I go to Airbnb anywhere else? There, there's nothing really drawing me to Airbnb except that if it's just straight a better platform, which is very usable. But why not capitalize on that and, and add in some extra guest loyalty? Airbnb, if you're listening, do it. Yeah, I, I do want to prod you a bit on this 2,000 plus nights, uh, just to. It's something I've been curious about for a while, uh, specifically mm-hmm. your situation. So let's just say you get a one-month Airbnb, Playa del Carmen, blah, blah, blah. When you – let's just say you want to stay an additional month in Playa del Carmen. Are you always going to book that second month on Airbnb or or do you ever go to the guest and say, hey – or the, the host, sorry, and say, hey, you know, let's do this off Airbnb, 20% less. I got the cash, blah, blah, blah. Well, I almost never stay two months. The reason why I'm at 2,000 nights is because for the vast, vast, vast majority of my time, even when I'm here in Medellin, 
I move by the month. So I'm, I'm in now a, a neighborhood. I, I paid Airbnb for one month and then I'll go to a different, I like variety. So I'll go to a different one. With that said, there is a few situations. And interestingly enough, one of those situations was Playa del Carmen where I went, I think it might've been last year or two years ago. And I stayed for three months. And so the second two months or I stayed for two months and the, you know, the month afterwards, I liked my place and, um, I paid offline. Yeah. I remember you went this summer and you were like sweating. <laughs> In Playa? Yeah. It's hot, man. It's hot coming from <laughs> just like okay. walking around. I was sweating. So you're all, yeah. I remember you were just like, oh my God. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's because, yeah, yeah. It got really annoying at the end. I went in the months that and not only it was hot, <laughs> but it was super humid. And so, yeah. you know, I just took a shower. I'm good to go. I got shorts and flip-flops in and a tank top and you go outside and within 30 seconds, your, your eyebrows are, 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 you know, dripping yeah. wet and you're all yeah. sweaty. That's, yeah. you know, your pants are all wet. It's that, yeah, that was kind of annoying going that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can, I, we, we can actually come back to that to talk about seasonality in travel, uh, which is very important in Latin America. I definitely want to talk to you about kind of how you pick neighborhoods, how you pick cities, where to stay. Cause I think you understand the logistics of, of that better than most. And we can kind of talk about that, but I want to keep prodding you on this 2000 nights thing. So are you only looking at Airbnb when you're looking at somewhere to go? Do you ever even consider a hotel or, or, or another platform? I sometimes do hotels, but very rarely. I'm trying to think of the last time I did a hotel. Um, besides, you know, I stay in hotels here in Medellin as like a marketing uh, tactic and I stay there for a couple nights and I do a review on it. But outside of that, yeah, very rarely. I mean, if I would say 90% of my travels, I am paying for an Airbnb and 10% I'm in a hotel staying with a friend or booking of direct. Right. And, um, you never like, cause at this point you do, uh, go back to the same cities a fair bit. You probably have some local contacts. Um, so you could, and you speak like decent Spanish and Portuguese, you could easily just look at those Serenta ads walking around the neighborhood, hit them up on WhatsApp, uh, strike up a deal. Or alternatively, you could have um, like real estate middlemen. Uh, I, I have some of these in Playa del Carmen and, and other spots where I say, hey, man, I'm trying to come in for a month. Can you finagle me a deal? And they'll say, hey, yeah, we got this for 1500 We got this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, sick, let's close it. I'll send the money transfer-wise. Um, do, you, do you almost feel like you're overpaying on Airbnb, but you're doing it for like research purposes or you, you like the convenience? It's uh, time is money. And I, that's why, you know, Airbnb, I can go on, I can book something. I know I have, you know, retribution in terms of the review. Um, I tried that once, only once when I was in Manila, because it's kind of expensive, Philippines. And I, I decided to, I think I decided to like reach out to some buildings or something or post something on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it was just a lot of time. I realized this is a waste of time. You know, I could spend two, three hours doing this, or I can, you know, do something else, you know, and I value my time pretty highly. So simply for that reason, if, if there's some th- things that work out, like in, and I'm sure it's different by different uh, markets, like, like Manila isn't super touristy kind of is, but like Playa del Carmen will be more so. So there might be a more structured network set up there where you can go to agents. They have agents set up scouring Facebook groups. But for me, it's just simply uh, ease. 
and maybe a little bit marketing as well at this point, you know, because of the of the Airbnb short term rental gurus, um, none of them can say they worked at Airbnb, and also none of them can say they have stayed. They live in Airbnbs, so that's that. Like, uh, at least in my mind, <laughs> puts me in a very distinct category. Yeah, definitely contributes to the authority. I feel like you're good though. Like, I don't know if how much marginal benefit you'll get from three <laughs> thousand nights or four thousand nights. Yeah, I hear you. But again, it's just, uh, I think it's just ease. You know, I have to, I'm moving by the month. So if I have to, and I do go visit new cities, but I, I mean the same cities, but I also like to visit different cities. Um, like, you know, I'm going back to Kazakhstan. I'm going to do another, my, my fifth world tour coming up here and I'll go to Kazakhstan in a few months. And I know Almaty. I liked Almaty and I would be more than happy going back to Almaty, but I have this, um, I'm going to go to um, Nur Sultan, which is the, is the name. It used to be, uh, I forget what the, Astana. It used to be Astana. So I'm going to go there. Oh, you know, a good example is Brazil. I've been to various cities in Brazil and I just went there a few months ago and I decided to go to Belo Horizonte, which I liked, and Campinas, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. 45 minutes, an hour north of Sao Paulo. Right. And Campinas was horrible for lack of a better word. It wasn't like necessarily horrible, but for my reasons, for my wants of traveling, it was horrible. It was very residential. It wasn't touristy, which is usually cool, but like there was no one walking on the streets. It was kind of sleepy. It was hard to meet people. Same at the gym wasn't all that epic. So, you know, sometimes I fail, but I have, I do have this like need or like really want to go and explore different cities. Even if I know, Hey, I know I like, um, Sao Paulo. I know I like Rio, but hey, let's go to Campinas. Sometimes it works out. <laughs> sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And then here's the thing I'll push back is like, it's um with Airbnb, it's very difficult to get a refund. If um either you don't like the, pl- I had a situation recently where my place was like right beside a construction site. And obviously they never tell you that. And I said, look, I want a refund. I don't want to live beside a construction site for a whole month. And they said like, no, that's not grounds for a refund. Airbnb said that. And I was like, so you can, you can kind of get screwed a couple of ways. I'm, I haven't asked for a refund in a while. The last time I asked that when I was actually in Rio de Janeiro and there was a bunch of construction going on and they did give me a refund. I've asked for it a few times, but in the last three years, I haven't asked for it because the last, because I, because I have, you know, I, on my profile, I, I'm public about who I am. You know, mm-hmm. if I leave a bad review for a host and this has happened, you know, they can go on and leave me negative book reviews and go on my website and leave me re- negative reviews on Google and this and that. They can, you know, downvote all my YouTube videos. They could do a lot of damage for one of that. And a lot of people are spiteful. So I, I basically always give five-star reviews and don't ask for a, a refund except in like egregious cases. I think twice I've rated the host less than five stars. Today's episode is sponsored by BitRefill. BitRefill allows you to shop online and in person without banks, converting your crypto directly into merchant balance. It offers more than 10,000 gift card options in 180 countries. We're talking gift cards to Nike, Amazon, Apple, Airbnb, Hotels.com, all paid for with crypto. And the best part is this is not just in the USA and Canada, but all across the world and all across Latin America with gift card options in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Argentina, El Salvador, and many more. You can also apply the code MyLatinLife at checkout to get 10% Bitcoin back into that BitRefill account 
for your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. And I think another thing about Airbnb that you, 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 you wouldn't fall for this because you're only doing one month rentals, but I always tell people never do more than a month because there's some sort of like clause with Airbnb that uh, you can only kind of get the refund on the first 28 days or something. But if it's like a two month or three month Airbnb, you can't really get that money back if you need a refund. I forget the exact relationship, but I remember it being, I remember there being very little upside to doing longer than a month. That's probably great advice. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever booked more than a month. It doesn't really make sense as well because a month in advance is like kind of when people are booking. So you can go somewhere and then spend at least a few days there and figure out if you like it. What if you book for two or three months and you don't like the place? That's mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of sucks. So I think a month is sufficient. Yeah. That, that's good advice. And uh, one last question. What do you do about slow Wi-Fi? Like I had a situation recently where I even messaged them before I booked. I said, look, I need fast Wi-Fi. One of the reviews said the Wi-Fi wasn't great. And they're like, no, 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 it's all good. Wi-Fi has been fixed. And then I get there and then the Wi-Fi sucks. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Now, now I need a co-working. And then I said, guys, at least pay for my co-working. And they said, no, we're not paying for your co-working. Uh, <laughs> 13 megabytes is fast enough for most things. I'm like 13 megabytes, bro. Like, what are you talking about? We, we yeah. And, and, uh, I, it's like, I almost needed a refund, but then Airbnb says, Oh, slow Wi-Fi or 13 megabyte Wi-Fi isn't grounds for a refund. Uh, that must happen a fair bit. Yeah. I've got a good story about that. Well, so first, first of all, you can ask the, you can ask them to take a screenshot, Hey, run speed test and take a screenshot of that because even if they're doing it, you know, if they're, even if they're doing it somewhere else and then you get there, you're like, well, this is what the screenshots that I have proof and not. So at least you get a refund there. That's that may be. I I find that they typically say like, Oh, I'm not in the unit. I can take a screenshot in three days. And you're like, God damn, I just want to make a decision on my Airbnb. Okay. Well, you can also have them say like, Hey, what's the megabyte? What's the, what's the, uh, uh, upload speed. There's also something on Airbnb. Sometimes you have, do they still have it? Did they get rid of it? Huh? I don't know why they got rid of it. Okay. Oh, you can go to amenities. And I think in amenities, if the, the, the host can actually test their Wi-Fi, and it'll say, I'm, I'm on mine right now checking just to verify. Oh, Wi-Fi. It doesn't even say that. Wow. They got rid of that. That is strange. They used to have it on there, the actual speed. You know, the host could do a speed test and it would show it. Mm-hmm. They got rid of that for some reason. But it has happened to me a lot of times, and that's kind of the one downside you know, one of the downsides of Airbnb, I was here, I booked a place, I asked for a discount. They gave me a discount. And then when I got there, um, I couldn't like figure out the Wi-Fi. And, and they said, um, they, they said they, they, there was like a portable Wi-Fi thing that I'd never seen before. So, okay, I got that set up. And then a half day later that stopped working. And I reached out to the host and I was like, Hey, what's going on with this Wi-Fi? And he's like, Oh, let me check let me check with my partner. And I was like, okay. So like a day later, two days later, he comes back and he's like, oh, um, because we gave you a discount, we decided not to renew the Wi-Fi. You can take that device to the local like store and sign up for a plan. That's insane. Isn't that fucking insane? I was like, what? Oh my God. Um, so I don't know what I did there, uh, to be honest. I mean, those, those days I went to co-workings, which is okay, but it's kind of you know, inconvenient sometimes. I think I use my cell phone data. Um, 
that's the biggest downside with Airbnb. Yeah, I'm at a I'm at a unit now. They don't provide a blender, so I had to go buy one. It's another then, one. You and me, we're we're big blender guys. A blender is a common amenity. I mean, unless you're really bottom of the barrel, um, like cheap budget listing, a blender is a common thing that you should have. I'd say I'd say it's only like fifty percent of units. Yeah, I, I mean, I sometimes look specifically for blenders or ask them if they don't see it in the in the in the in the listing. Um, and I asked them to buy it this time. They didn't, they said, no, they also didn't have scissors. I was like looking for scissors the other day. They didn't have scissors. And I asked if they could provide it. Guess what they said? Tell me. I'm like, we're, we're sorry. We don't provide that item. I was like, what? they also have an oven. They got an oven, right? But they have nothing to use with the oven. No oven mitts, nothing to put in the oven to cook. Like, like trays, <laughs> nothing, nothing. So the inconsistency is a problem. It's ins- Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, wine openers. Sometimes they won't have a wine opener. And then I'm like at the store and I have to buy the one bottle that's twist off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can opener, the, cutting board, strainer. There's a lot of, the, lot of, lot of missing yeah. amenities, common missing. The, the amenities. blender is the biggest one I feel because if you can't have smoothies, it really screws up your whole like gym vibe for the month. Yeah. Also it's more like a scissors. All right. Three bucks, but a blender can be like you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks. And so what would you ever do if they just like refuse to provide it? Because I know you're like religious about your gym and stuff. I'd buy one. I bought one this time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I told them, I was like, you know what else they didn't have? They didn't have um, detergent either. If you have a washer, you've got to have detergent. Otherwise, you know, I've got to go and buy a big thing of detergent for your guests. So I went and I bought detergent and then I asked them for the blender and they're like, we don't provide that. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I bought you detergent as well for your future guests. I guess I'll buy you a, a blender for your future guests as well. And they didn't respond to that, but I hope I got the point across, which I didn't. Cause then I asked for scissors and they're like, oh, we don't provide scissors. Dude, it's insane how Airbnbs and sorry if this episode is now just us complaining about <laughs> small, <laughs> small first world problems on Airbnb, but it's insane how they just won't have water in country, you know, it'll be a country where you can't drink the tap water. And then they don't even provide even like one liter of water. And then there'll be not even like a bar of soap. And it's like, (laughs) I can't drink water and I can't have a shower. Like when I show up from the airport, it's these things would cost $2 and it makes such a big difference. Huge difference. Yeah. Especially if you're like, it happened to me numerous times. I'm traveling all day long. I'm in a foreign country. I arrive late at night. I don't know if I can drink the water out of the tap. I assume I can't. I don't really know where to go as well. Everything might be closed. So it's like, you know, all right, I'll go to bed and, you know, just have not that night. Yeah. These are things that separate, you know, good hosts from bad hosts. And it's not even that complicated. Like we're talking about water, buy a water. It's not rocket science here, buy scissors. So what, so what do you think? Like, um, Tell us a little bit about uh, the trip that you're planning for this year for the world tour. Tell us about the world tour. I'm still planning the world tour. I've been like in these these past six months have been the busiest of my entire life doing this book. I haven't, you know, my watch broke. I've got like stains on my clothes, holes in my pants. I haven't had, (laughs) I haven't had time to do any of that stuff. Like it's been crazy insane, but I did recently just kind of have a gander. And I think I'm looking at, um, so I usually do a trip, around the world, I go to uh, Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia, and then sometimes stop in Europe as well. So this time there's a direct flight to Madrid. And um, so I'll go do that. And then I'll take a train out to Barcelona. I'll go to, and I like, I don't like layovers. So I f- schedule my trips wherever I can have the least layovers, ideally no yeah. layovers. Direct so Madrid, only. direct flight. Yeah. 
And then from Madrid, I can go to, I'm going to go to Kazakhstan. There is one layover there, but after that, it's all direct flights. And then I'll go to, um, what's on the list is Bali to visit uh, my best friend, um, the Philippines. I liked Jakarta as well. And then I'm going to go to like um, Cambodia, I think. And I like Thailand. Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, Vietnam. Vietnam is probably my favorite Southeast mm-hmm. Asia country. I'll mm-hmm. definitely go back there. Heard you talk about that. Yeah. So I think the anomaly there is Kazakhstan, uh, where you've been before. Um, tell us a little bit about Kazakhstan and why you like it. I liked it because it was, okay, the people are super friendly. And I know that's generally generic, but I actually like genuinely made friends there. We went on, we went on this trip to see um, hieroglyphic. I don't know how to say the word, but like, you know, things that were written 3000 or 10,000, I forget years ago on, on rocks. And like, it was a UNESCO world heritage site. But when you go to these places, like I could actually, if I wanted to, I could get my own rock and draw my own thing on that rock because they let you get up close and look at it. Whereas, you know, when you're in super populated areas, you have to wait extra lines. It costs more. You have, there's a, there's a barrier 10 feet away from what you're actually trying to look at. Um, so that was a cool, unique experience. And we were literally driving through like just, there was horses crossing the road and, and, and cows and goats and whatnot. And I went with a couple friends. I met people at the gym, super friendly. There was a good mix of like, um, uh, Eurasians and also just straight up Russians. It was super clean. Like the streets, you know, the, the sidewalks, I know you're in Panama. I'm, I'm here in Colombia. I've been to Dominican Republic. A lot of these places, the sidewalks are like all dirty and you know, there's weeds coming up and there's, it's trashy. Like the, the sidewalks and the streets were clean. The air was clean. You could drink the water. There was a Metro system. Um, the weather was nice. I was just, the cafe scene was good. I was generally impressed with the infrastructure, the friendliness of the people and the affordability, the walkability as well. It it was, yeah, it was kind of impressive to be honest. I'm looking forward to going back there. I thought it'd be cool to get into a little bit of your rules around travel and um, kind of how you book things, how you think about logistics and where to stay. I'm wondering if we should start on the the logistics of the city or, or what part of uh, your travel rules. But I, I definitely want to dig into it because I think you have a lot of good value there. Yeah, I've got, um, this is actually uh, touching on another, another book that I, that I wrote, uh, but I have criteria that I've developed. Um, there's like, I forget how many there are. There's like 19 or 20 different criteria that I look for in a city. And then of course, like if I'm getting super technical, all right, I got like 19 criteria and then I compare that to the cost of living. And that tells me like where I want to go. But if we zoom out a little bit, um, I'm traveling, if I'm just being real, the, the big main factors I'm traveling based on are weather, women, and cost of living. It's a good big three. Yeah, that's my big three. Now, walkability is super important to me, but there's there's basically always, almost always, a walkable area in the city. Um, Dominican Republic is an exception, uh, or Santo Domingo specifically. San Salvador and El Salvador is also an exception, super not walkable. So there's a few that are not, but generally, that's like that's a life hack, in, including staying in Airbnbs, by the way. Um, is a life hack because I it's maybe more expensive, but it's just efficient. I don't have to deal with any kind of bills. I don't have to, you know, when you, anyways, um, 
let me know if you want me to <laughs> go on that life hack. But walkability is yeah, another no, life I like hack. It. I, li- I like the la- life hack. I think about it too because I think about – I guess this is an aside, but I think about getting the lease and then I think about how nice it's been to have no lease for the past like five years and less responsibility and stuff. And I'm like, how much extra per month am I willing to pay to have no responsibility? Yeah. It, well, it's, it's no responsibility and it's your time. How much do you value your time? And what are you going to have to do when you move out? You're going to have to clean your space. You're going to have to repair your space. That's a few days activity. And then you move out, you have to do something with your furniture. And then they're going to say, hey, you didn't do this well. So we're going to take half your security deposit or you even owe us more. Um, that is something that I just avoid. And then of course I mentioned the utilities. I don't have water utilities, electricity, garbage, gas, cable TV, all that stuff is included. It's plug and play. Yeah. I'm trying to think if on the previous episode, we went through your list of the 20 criteria. I want to think we did. Uh, cause I think you kind of had that hashed out, but maybe let's double down on talking about the benefits of what we call the vortex zone or living in that walkable neighborhood. So do you always try to identify that one, you know, gringoified walkable neighborhood and stay there? Or maybe on the flip side, you purposely don't stay there because you want to be, you know, more, more badass. How do you think about it? If I'm going to a super popular, a discovered market to touch on what we talked about, then I'm probably looking at the second, third, or fourth most popular neighborhood, depending on how big the city is. Because in the second, third, or fourth popular neighborhood, in these in these discovered super popular neighborhoods, like Madrid is a good example, um, the first one is just too much. But the second, third, and fourth, they're still close enough. They still have good infrastructure. They still have a good cafe scene. They're still walkable. If I'm going to a place that's not as popular, for example, I made this mistake in when I went to Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, I stayed at like the second or the third, I can't remember, most popular area. And I generally like doing that because it's more authentic of an experience. But in this case, it was a mistake because everything was was there's there's it's it's a smaller city and not popular not not touristy so there's the main neighborhood is the neighborhood you'd want to stay at for the good infrastructure and the most walk walkability um, even though that city's not super walkable that's that's how I think about it so when I go to like uh, uh, Almaty or Kazakhstan I'll go to the most central um, areas if I'm going to Vietnam like uh, Saigon. I know there's like five or six or even more like, you know, walkable neighborhoods. So I'll I'll probably go to like the fifth or sixth or seventh. And so is it mostly like a, a price thing or is it a experience thing? It's an experience thing mostly. Yeah. I think it's more, I think it's more authentic. I can fit in a little bit more and I separate myself a little bit more. So when I go for a month you know, most people think they first see me, okay, gringo here for a few days. They see me for a week and they're like, they start to be like, oh, okay. You know, and then in the grocery store, or the barber shop, for example. And they're like, okay, a week, he's been in here twice. That's a little interesting. After like the, the 10th day, the second week, then they're like, oh, wait, are you living here? And so you form a little bit, you, you get past the, okay, this guy's here for two or three days, you know, be nice, but superficial stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. So you think you have a little bit more of an impact when you go to, you know, I guess like the, if it was a Medellin example, instead of going to Poblado, you'd go to Loreles or I know you like Envergado, Sabaneta. So kind of like the, 
you know, third best neighborhood or something and you feel like prices will be better and you'll just kind of have a, a more authentic experience? Yeah. I, I mean, in Medellin specifically, I stay in Poblado. I prefer Poblado just because I think it's by far and away the best neighborhood. I liked it, man. I, I was in Medellin uh, a couple of weeks ago. I saw, um, I don't know if there were wakamayas, but I saw like bright green birds, you know, flying yep. across the treetops. And I was like, that's so sick. I thought this was only in like Caracas <laughs> where you get like the real birds. Just... Yeah, I think they should like even the government should like start a program where they where they like breed these birds and have more of them because I think that's a <laughs> that's such a cool sight though when you see that these colorful birds flying around I think that's like a like a magical experience but it doesn't happen all that often it's it's a it's rare. Yeah, I only saw them a couple times in the week yeah. I was there. I saw them at the uh, I went to the castle in Medellin. Yep, yep, yep. They they have uh, the big. Um, they have like grounds there in a big garden and I saw them there, but then I also saw them just from, just from my apartment. Cause it was in Poblado and, uh, it's like very, very lush and, and trees there and less, less dense in some ways. So I saw some from my window. That's one of the benefits I'm sitting here watching. I got trees. My view is trees. I've got the river running outside though. I closed the window. We got blue skies, 70 degrees out, probably Saturday. It's nice. It's nice being here for sure. I always leave. And when I'm gone for a few months, I always, Medellin specifically, this only happens with Medellin. I'm, I'm always like, oh, I'm looking forward to coming back. I'm always looking forward to coming mm -hmm. back when I come here. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a question I want to get into with you. Uh, something I think a, a little bit about, and I, I think this has um, a lot of implications for digital nomads and for kind of the local real estate markets in, in some of these cities is, you know, there's, there's the city and then there's the gringo vortex zone neighborhood. And it, it's almost like two different realities. Um, not only day to day, but also from a real estate perspective, right? Because the rest of the city could be so undesirable that no one wants to stay there but the, the gringo vortex zone can be really quite nice. You got the gym, you got the nightclubs, et cetera. And um, when you think about, and first of all, your experience is going to be totally different as a visitor if you stay in one or the other. But then from a real estate perspective, it's like, I mean, there's a couple of things to touch upon from a real estate perspective, but it's like, let's say the gringo vortex zone maybe costs 50% more, maybe even double what real estate costs in the rest of the city, but it's so much more desirable from a Airbnb perspective and just from like a, a, a standard of living perspective. And I, I, I kind of see a world where the gringo vortex zones kind of continue to skyrocket in, uh, in value and more people coming through. Whereas kind of like the, you know, the normal, I guess you'd call it like blue collar neighborhoods, more or less stay flat. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And here in Medellin, it's another good example. There is, there is a lot of people coming to Medellin, not only tourists, but also like developers, real estate developers. And they have expanded this, this um, gringo vortex, which I've never heard before. And so there is, there's not only Parque Giras is like the main park and then there's Provenza, but down down towards like the Medellin River, there's a, a neighborhood called Astorga, 
which just in the past few years has really been up and coming. It's a new gringo vortex zone. And then there's another neighborhood called Astorga, which is, which is where I'm staying at this month. That is that. So the gringo vortex zone has expanded. If there's not this interesting combination of, of, you know, good real estate uh, gringo developers or uh, foreigner developers uh, in Mm -hmm. these certain cities, then yeah, it's probably going to have much less growth, and the and the vortex zone is going to be very um, small. Yeah, so Astorga looks interesting. I'm looking at a map. Map. It's like basically Poblado, um, so very very close. I think the thing is like if you're if you're thinking about where to invest, I think you really want to invest in this vortex zone because it's going to continue to be desirable and it's going to attract the gringos that have um, kind of higher disposable incomes, right? Like you could take any city, right? Uh, maybe, you know, Buenos Aires, I guess. So you'd say it's like there's investing in Palermo and then there's investing anywhere else. And they're almost like two different things. That's exactly right. Yeah, you can. I mean, what you want to, I mean, how I think about it is I, I want a home run deal. I invested in where it's already discovered in terms of Colombia, Provenza, Poblado area. But I got a, I got what I, you know, what I thought was and what turned out to be a really good deal. So you can, if I wanted to, I could go a little bit outside of this vortex zone and try and, uh, try and plan out. Okay, if I did that four years ago um, in Astorga, okay, are we going to expand to Astorga? Is it desirable? If you had a hunch that it would, then it probably makes sense to go there. But you're getting more risky. Whereas, you know, why not just find a great deal in the already established area? And the interesting thing about Medellin, again, is this is the single most desirable area of the whole city. There's nothing even close. The Parque Giras area with the park in the middle and the trees and the river going down and, and all the nightlife and around. There's nowhere else in the city that comes even close. There's Laureles, but it's it's very different. Um, Astorga actually has Parque Poblado. It's a, it's a different scene because it's next to a main road, but it's also a very cool vibe. We're, we're a, a younger vibe, people going there and and um, drinking at night and just chilling out. But they've got like a walking, like a Provenza type area as well. So there's two different strategies, but I think both of them can work for sure. Yeah, I think in my experience, just uh, running this Twitter and everything, is that most people aren't really aren't willing to take the risk to be in an up and coming neighborhood. They just want the plug and play. Yep. And that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's fine. I didn't want a project on my hands. So I paid a lot more to get a house that was ready. I came in here and, you know, beer was in the fridge. We're literally ready to, I paid (laughs) for that, but it was, it was what I wanted to do. I did not want a hassle on my hands. Um, you know, and kind of rolling the dice with the, just like a, with a different neighborhood, maybe a potentially up and coming neighborhood, rolling the dice with contractors and getting all these things ready, and it delays an extra six months. So it's just a strategy. I think it can, I think it can work. But that's the point. You're in. That's the reason why you're investing in these in these third world countries with a lot of potential, is because the returns are higher. You you, you should not be getting the same returns as a U.S. investor gets mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna have more thoughts about this. Uh... Gringo zone thing when I when I get offline, but I I knew you were kind of the guy to talk about it because you've uh, been to hundred plus cities around the world, and I hope this doesn't sound pejorative, but you were basically going and staying in every Gringo vortex zone all around the world. That's exactly what I do. No, it's. <laughs> 
I here's my strategy. I start with the gringo zone of the you know the capital city or the main city. That's my uh-huh. first touch point with the city. If uh-huh. I like that, then I go to the second and third and fourth and I branch out. Here in Colombia, I've been to 30 different cities. I've stayed in El Centro in Medellin, which is the most dangerous parts of the city. But that's how I do it. That's how I prefer to do it. I think it, you know, makes sense. I like it. It's my strategy. Mm-hmm. And so would you recommend for, I guess you probably would, you'd recommend for any uh, aspiring digital nomad or first year digital nomad, just stick with the gringo zone. And and I guess how much would you be willing to pay extra to be in that walkable neighborhood, to be in that gringo zone versus a little bit out? Because I think, um, dude, this is a huge thing is people get so uh, caught up with just having a nice Airbnb and having a place with, you know, marble top sinks and whatever, like a balcony. And they don't, and I, I always try to explain to people that you would rather, my, my philosophy is you would rather a mediocre Airbnb in a perfect neighborhood than a nice Airbnb in a bad neighborhood because logistics are everything. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah walkability is so i went i just went back to california i visited my family out there that's where i'm from and this is the second time that that it happened to me and i realized that the last time but i re-realized that this last time is when i go back there i am so less efficient why am i less efficient there's a single there's a there's one single reason why am i so so less efficient in the usa and it's a car I have to get in that car and go and drive 15 to 30 minutes to go to the grocery store, to go to the barber shop, to visit family. Then I might have to look for parking. That's an extra five to 10 minutes to go to the gym. So I'm doing something a day. I do three things a day. That's three hours in the car. That mm. is such a waste of time. I will never, I don't think, I don't want to say never, but I probably will not live in a neighborhood, whether it's in the US or here where I have to drive a car. It's not what I want to do and super inefficient. Yeah. To me, a car should be for getting out of the city and going on adventures, not for like the day-to-day. Yeah. Even in Medellin, I bought a scooter, like an electric scooter, which is so dope because I can be like a pedestrian. I can be a motorcycle if I want. I ride in the street. I don't don't yield at stop signs. I just go right through. (laughs) (laughs) Right on the sidewalk if I want. See, that's one thing I'm missing is – I almost want to live somewhere a bit longer term just so I can get a bicycle and just be, uh, you know, biking along the beachfront boardwalk and all that. I, I miss having a bike. Yep. And nowadays you got those electric bikes, right? So you could be a lazy bike. Yeah. There's one that my buddy showed me. It's like, it's an electric bike. It's basically a motorcycle, but it's still classified mm-hmm. as a bike. So you, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to do registration and all and insurance and all that stuff. I was, I'm actually thinking of getting it here for, um, Medellin. I think Airbnb should try to offer bikes to guests. Um, it's a bit of a tricky thing, but it'd be sick. It'd be sick. Well, the, the unfortunate thing is like, this is bigger in the U S but it's like liability. Oh, do we want a hot tub liability? Do we want to offer bikes liability? It's like, yeah, it's, that's like the main focus. It's like not enjoyment. Um, it's, it's focusing on like the 0.1% of the potential liability. Yeah, I mean that's definitely why we enjoy Latin America. Is it's is it's um, less of a consideration. It's more just about enjoying life, less mm-hmm. litigious, litigious. Here, here. <laughs> 
How much do you think you'd be willing to pay extra for like a perfect neighborhood? Like if I if I gave you two options, uh, let's just say in Medellin, I guess, just to keep using the same example, um, or even Panama City, somewhere you don't you you know a bit, but it's not your wheelhouse. Let's just say I said, Danny, I got two options for you. I got perfect location for 1500 bucks a month and you're going to be on top. You, you have a gym in your building. You have a, a top restaurant downstairs. You have a top nightclub a block away. You have a, a couple of coffee shops. It's going to be perfect. Or I said, I have another spot for mm, 750 bucks, half the price, but it's like on the other side of the highway or something. <laughs> what, what are you taking? If I have the money, I'm going with the more expensive option because of because of um, because I if you have money, you value your time more. So if I have the money, I would value my time more, and I would get the more expensive option, no doubt about it. But if I'm saving up or whatnot, and I value my time a little bit less, then I'm going to go for the cheaper option. At this stage in my life, at least at this point, I would go for the more expensive option. That's what I do. Yeah. Okay. Especially on Airbnb specifically, if you go for the the deals it's more likely you're going to get the bad, the short end of the stick because um, these inconsistencies. As you, as you raise your threshold, your price threshold, oftentimes, oftentimes, not always, um, you, there's less problems. You know, you're right. not you're next to a construction site. of host. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah. balcony doesn't open up to you know, another building two inches away or you're not on the second level. You're, you know, I, I notice those are big changes when you increase your budget. Definitely makes sense. That's actually a good consideration is that it's not just the neighborhood or whatever. There's, there's going to be a lot of small, more small hiccups when you go for the cheap option. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Hey everybody. Hey everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about language blend, the best new way to learn Spanish language blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. Um, yeah, I guess we can kind of mix it up. I think we kind of belabored the the Gringo Vortex Zone uh, enough, and and feel free to use that. I didn't I didn't invent the term. Do you have another term for that, or how do you call it? <laughs> no, I don't even know. I don't know. The Goldilocks Zone might be might be <laughs> what? No, it's <laughs> no. <laughs> funny. Yeah, man, the, the Goldilocks Zone. The, the, we're in the gold. We're all in the Goldilocks Zone of the universe. <laughs> I like it, man. Um, ah, man, a couple things we could talk about, but tell me a bit about uh, the book in terms of like, what was your writing process? Are you, did you, do you try to write like a little bit every day? Do you write in the mornings? Do you write in the evenings? How did you kind of compile everything? Uh, for the book or just in general? Yeah, for the book, for, for Profitable Properties. Okay. Cause I'm a writer. I'm, I've been a writer. I'm, I just, I write, I've had a journal since I was in seventh grade. I've got a website where I write. So I was, I wasn't sure. And I do really enjoy writing, but for the, for the book, I spent a good like two weeks on, and, and by the way, anyone who's interested in writing a book, I get that now that I'm a little bit more known as an author. I, I get that question every now and then people, I, I want to write a book, but 
I'm not really sure how I, I wrote a blog post on my website, Danny Boo Boo, just, you know, how to write a book. And so I spent like a good two hours writing the outline. Um, and that's the outline is like super important if you want to write a, a book type thing or really anything. And I would just spend, I mean, I'd spend days on end, man, writing, going to cafes, getting high on caffeine. Um, I, I, I went out, that's part of the reason why I moved to El Centro to get away from um, like, you know, kind of social requirements. If, if I'm in Medellin, I have friends here. And so I can't, you know, I was saying, no, I can't go to this. I can't go to dinner. I can't go to the gym with you. I can't do all this. So uh, you can only do that for like so long, kind of, I noticed. So I, I like separated myself. I went to the Dominican Republic again as well and finished up the book. And it took, a, you know, the book was 115,000 words, which no is way. way. That's enormous. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's enormous, really enormous. Um, and I edited it down to 97,000 words, which is 378 pages. It turned out to be. It's like a but, solid article is a thousand words. So that's a exactly. that's hundred solid articles. Yeah. Yeah. A typical book, nonfiction book is going to be like 50,000 words. Okay. And that's how much my, my first book was as well. Yeah. Um, so I am, I am looking at the outline or, or the, the blog article, uh, how to write and publish a book. So you do the, so you, uh, you, you write the outline, you write the draft, you revise the draft, um, title, you hire editors is hiring editors always a step in how do you, how do you, uh, how do you find editors that, um, understand your niche well enough to, like, do you try to find editors that understand the niche or just like generic book editors? There's a few, there, there's various types of editors. You do want an editor that understands your niche. Editing fiction and developing storylines is very different than editing nonfiction. There's also editors, especially on Upwork and things like this, who are just think they're editors and they're, they're good writers and they edit on a casual basis. And then you have professional editors who worked somewhat, you know, a professional job, have a degree of, you know, of writing and grammar language. I, a lot of people don't do this. Like a lot of just, you know, random authors writing, publishing books out, they don't, they skip this step where they hire someone that's cheap. I hired someone that was cheap last time and I got some negative reviews for that. This time I actually hired someone who was expensive, six times more expensive than what I paid the last person. And while he did definitely improve my manuscript, and I'm very grateful for that, the detail editing was subpar. And I noticed myself, you know, common edits, uh, typos. And I'm, not, I'm, you know, there's like, there's, there's common typos, but there's also like grammatical errors and syntax errors that, you know, punctuation errors that I'm not an expert at. So it's, and I'm in, I'm in over my head, but yeah, you can hire up to, if I were to get this book professionally published, you know, there's like five different types of editors that go in there, like line editors, someone who goes in and looks at the foundation of concepts. And so editing is a whole different topic. I think nonfiction books are in an interesting place because especially with AI, um, because like, is this something you think about at all? Because with nonfiction, it's basically just facts. I feel like AI is just going to be able to write all the nonfiction books that that can be written. You know what I mean? I guess obviously you have a you know a specific kind of skill set around Airbnbs, and it's going to be a little bit harder to reproduce that. But they can. Um, don't you feel like they're they're just going to be able to like 
compile all these new kind of history books that have never been written before or, or, or things like that with AI? Yeah, I think maybe eventually. Um, that's like history books you said, yeah. Um, but if, there, if you're thinking to the future, if you're publishing, like AI is, is not really AI. It's taking what we already know, what's already online. If there's like some doctor studying in some field of advanced psychology or, uh, or, or, or science, he, and he's publishing a book on that, an AI would never be able to write that. They don't have access to that knowledge. Um, but my book, my manuscript got flagged for being AI. Really? Yeah, I'm not sure why, but the, my it got flagged. I uploaded it finally, ready. Okay, I'm good. I had I put out a hundred fires. And there's a thousand decisions you have to make writing a book. Good. I just uploaded. It. Good. It comes back. Oh, you've been denied for like potentially, you know, mass producer AI. And I was like, motherfucker. So I dealt with that. It was easy. I just sent a, a an appeal in, and they looked at it, and obviously they're like, okay, it's not. And so they they undid that. But I do want to make a public service to folks who are interested in reading. And as I am, I, I read a lot and I go to Amazon and I look a lot for books. And I've been increasingly more disappointed with the books that I bought. And it's because I think there's two things going on. One of them and mostly is ghostwriting and AI as well. And so I've realized um, I've, I've kind of I've started to develop a way to pick out, even if they have good reviews, pick out shitty books or generic books. And so there's a lot of writers out there. So, so a shitty generic book is probably going to be some, some writer. They might have two, three, 400 reviews and a 4.5 average, which is good. But you're gonna, one of the ways that I realize they're shitty writers is because they're going to have a bunch of books. They're going to have a bunch of books saying the same thing, but with different titles and different cover photos and slightly different angles of the subject. So when I'm looking for books and when, 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 your reader, your listeners looking for books. Um, cause I don't want, it's too bad. Cause there's a lot of like low quality books go on there and look for like an author who's writing, uh, either famous. I think now you'd have to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to famous authors, authors who have, who are known in their field or authors who have written a book. Like if you've written one book, you probably put a lot into that book and you, you want it, even if it didn't do that good, even if it doesn't have that many reviews, I preference authors who have one or two books rather than an author who has a dozen books on health and fitness and they're yeah, all kind of generic. A, a yeah. dozen's definitely a little fishy. It's like, yeah. this guy's cranking it out too much. Yeah. And that's interesting. And so who, who was flagging the AI in your book? That was the, the publisher. It was like Ingram Spark or something. Yeah. Ingram Spark. I think it was what, what, for whatever reason. So I fucked up big time. There's like, a, like I said, there's like a million decisions you have to make. And one, one of those, on a few of those decisions I fucked up, but on one specifically big one, I fucked up. And that was, I wanted to book my book on presale for a month before it went on sale. And I messed up the dates. There's two dates. And so the book was on sale. But obviously, you know, I wasn't, if the book was ready, I would just put it on sale. So I uploaded a, a, you know, a manuscript that wasn't ready, an early manuscript. And it was on sale. So someone could, someone would have got that manuscript if they, if they made the purchase, which I was like, I, you know, I was like already exhausted. And so I had to spend a whole full 24 hours fixing that error. Um, but I think because, um, because of that, I think maybe it got um, maybe it got flagged because I, I hired someone off Fiverr to do like a really quick like interior design job. That's the only thing I can think of. So I'll I'll, I'll let you know why I ask is because 
uh, and this is very selfish on my part, but maybe some other people have similar ideas, is that I, I want to write like nonfiction books about Latin America and explore some stories that haven't really been told, but they're nonfiction books. But so I had this one example where maybe you've heard that Chichen Itza in Mexico was really kind of discovered by archaeologists from Boston, from Harvard and from Yale. And a uh, hundred years ago, the, uh, the, what's it called? The, the Titans of American industry, you know, like Carnegie and Ford and, and these guys, they were financing expeditions to Mexico to go, you know, uh, uh, discover all this stuff from the Mayan culture and the Olmec culture. And they, they were sending explorers to, you know, do scientific research because Mexico just wasn't really investing in it. And I, I was looking on Amazon and stuff, and I just couldn't find too many books about this piece of history, uh, either about the stories from the explorers themselves or just kind of about this whole situation. Um, and it, it, it's a very real thing because there's um, on, on the Harvard campus, they have like the biggest collection of Mayan uh, 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 relics and artifacts in the world actually other outside of mexico is in boston on, on the harvard campus and i wanted to write i thought it'd be cool to write a nonfiction book about this and and you know have the it's a pretty easy to do the outline right it's like chapter one like who was financing these expeditions um what was the state of uh, uh the state of understanding and discovery prior to the arrival of the american archaeologists what did the american archaeologists discover right and so you can kind of write a book and you could almost maybe if the AI gets really good, kind of have AI help you write the book or, but I'm almost like, this is going to be futile because AI could basically write the whole book once, once some of the primary texts have been scanned and they're more available online, then the AI could like read the scans of the other previous books that you'd be using as references. And they could just do the whole book for you and they could probably like compile it. And like, it's, it's crazy, right? So I don't know what the state of uh, like nonfiction writing would be at this point in time. Yeah, that's to be TBD. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, my AI right now is not good enough. They're not going to write a quality book. Uh, if, if it's six months where they can write a better book than the average writer, if it's two years, if it's five or 10 years, I'm not really sure. Um, but... You know, there's a lot of there. There's like uh, I'm I'm writing a book. I'm reading a book on St Stephen King called On Writing, mm -hmm. and I don't it's know why yeah. it's his book. Yeah, it's oh, if the title is On Writing, and I don't know what it is. I, I'm trying to figure out what it is. But when I start reading it, it's a nonfiction book. When I start reading it, I can't put it down because it's really interesting to read, and there's subtleties that he's using his style. It's keeping me engaged. It's just it's just words on a paper. But an AI bot, there's no way. There's no chance that it can get even close to a skilled um, writer at this point. Um, but you know, well, AI is interesting. We'll see if if we don't fuck it up. Humans typically we're really good at fucking shit up. He, AI has a lot of potential, but we could also just kind of fuck it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of ideas for for some of these books, and I think it'd be cool. I think it'd be cool, but at the same time, I think it might be become like obsolete 
Well, there's a lot of, like what you said, I didn't know that. And there's a lot of forgotten history. There's a lot of history. You know, what we have recorded is like just a tiny fraction. There's a lot of recorded history that is out there and interesting and people want to know. You just said one of them. Um, And it would be cool if you write one. It's a good experience. And we can talk about that later in a different podcast about like, you know, writing a good book is just one aspect and it's just a small aspect. I'm I'm sure there's a a ton, hundreds and thousands of really, really epic books out there that no one knows about because it doesn't matter if you write the best book in the world if no one buys it. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. We can talk a bit about book marketing. I mean, I I guess, you know, you already have a a bit of a, a brand and following, of course, and you've built up authority in the Airbnb market. Is there anything that you're doing differently with the second book launch in terms of uh, trying to get new eyeballs on it and uh, taking a different approach this time? Oh yeah. Huge different approach. This book. So in this book, part of it is I have what I call a deal sheet and I'm not, I don't mention any tools and softwares by name in the book. What I do is, hey, if you, I mention the service and then I, I refer people to the deal sheet, which has my recommendation, my top recommendation in a bunch of categories that Airbnb hosts would be interested in. And so I went to these partners and I said, hey, if you want to be included in this deal sheet, if you want, and my last book, by the way, sold 50,000 copies by word of mouth. So if you want to be in this, I would love you to be in this. I like your service. I use the service. I would like a mutually beneficial deal here. And so what the deal is for a lot of them is um, they'll post me to their social media, blog posts, podcasts. But the biggest mover, I think, is they'll send at least one dedicated email to their lists. And so I have emails, dedicated emails going out to more than 600,000 people over the next couple months. And so that's the biggest difference that I'm doing. And right now I'm looking at the book. I'm ranked number 7,000. So there's millions of books on, I don't know how impressive 7,000 sounds, but there's millions of books on Amazon. So if you're ranked in the top 50,000, that's pretty damn good. So in the top 10,000, that's extremely good. My last book was ranked 15,000 at the maximum. So it's off to a good start, but that was, that's my, that's my marketing. That was my marketing tactic for this time. I've got QR codes in the book as well. So it's easy for someone to, you know, come on over, enter their email address and get these bonus. I have eight different bonus items. So if you might not be interested in the deal sheet, maybe you're interested in one of the other seven, you give me your email, you'll get not only that bonus item, but also the deal sheet. And then how else do you try to increase your ranking in, in, uh, on the Amazon platform? Oh, that's something that, um, I'm researching now. Uh, you know, I didn't for, for optimize your Airbnb. I just wrote a good, the best book I could write and I put it out there and luckily it was well received and it was just, I've spent $0 on advertising and I didn't look at keywords. I didn't do any of that for this book. I did look into it a little bit. So like my title, for example, um, there's a service called publisher rocket and they, it's like, you know, Amazon is SEO as well. So it's a search engine. So I was, you know, so my title is partly built based on um, keywords, you know, so I have, uh, I have price, specifically the word price. I have book direct in my title and of course, Airbnb, because these are search, um, these are search terms, relevant search terms also in the, uh, in the, 
in the description, the book description, the sales copy. Also, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think that probably Amazon, if they don't read the, if they don't scan the whole book for keywords, they at least scan the, um, the, the, you know, the section names and the chapter names. So I made sure to include a variety of vacation rental, for example, short-term rental in those, mm. in those uh, titles as well. And then I'm mm. learning about advertisements as well. This year I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll spend some money on advertisements on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So you kind of SEO fied your book a bit. Yeah, as well as I could really basic stuff. Uh, I just didn't have time to look into it that much, but that's on my to-do list as well. And who's your your target market? Is it people uh, looking to get into the game, or is it people who are already operating multiple units? My, there's three target markets. The first one is yes, people already short term rental hosts, people who are interested in short term rentals. I have a various informa- information about that, and then also re- traditional real estate investors, whether that's commercial or long term, interested in moving some of their portfolio into short-term rentals. And I specifically focus on people, I say uh, 10 or less listings. If you start, if you want to have a hundred listings, hundred properties, that's fine. But I'm writing for people who want up to 10 listings. That's where, that's where I feel that I'm the best. Maybe this is too insider. You can feel free to save this juicy information for people that buy the book but what do you think are like the the big three top three mistakes that hosts are making the top three mistakes the hosts are making the first one will be interior design in no particular order interior design uh, it really sets you apart any two listings with with the with you know one has better clearly better interior design they're going to win that's one that's often under leveraged um it seems maybe intimidating as a as a uh as a topic. The second one is pricing. I quadrupled the income for my, here at the Belmonte Penthouse, I quadrupled the income from the past owner. And I did that for various reasons, but maybe the biggest reason was pricing. So you got to master pricing. It's it's not that hard with a little bit of education. I think the thing with pricing is like, um, a lot of people just don't get pricing and then they give up on it. But it's like, well, where where else do we, they're not a natural at this and then they give up. It's like, where else do we do that where we just expect to be a natural right away? Like when you learn to bike, to ride a bike, you learn to ride a bike. You know, when you learn to drive a car, you learn to drive a car. So you have to learn how to price your listing. There's no, you know, there's no difference in this. Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll say, which is a, which is a difference from all Airbnb experts is take your own photos. A lot of Ooh. hosts. Yeah. Um, and I and I have that opinion now because I hired eight photographers to to photograph this place, including a videographer. And I did that to for research, but also because I wanted the absolute best photos. And I was so disappointed with what they did. They 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 brought in a professional camera and they did that, and lighting was good too. But they didn't really get the angles. They didn't move things around. They didn't have a creative eye, which is really what I thought they did have. And so a lot of the photos on my Airbnb listing, they're, they're of my eye, of my angles. Um, and so it, with such an important aspect of your Airbnb listing, which is the photos, to shuffle that responsibility out to somebody else who has less skin in the game for your success seems a little bit 
now that I think about it, it seems a little bit crazy to me. And it's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't do professional photographers. There's, you know, if you don't have time or you just don't want to learn, again, you can, just like pricing, you have to learn how to take photos, but it's not that difficult. And whenever you update your house or if you have buy new ones, you don't have to pay someone. You don't have to go by their schedule. You don't, you you know, what if the weather's bad that day? Um, each, each room as well has different times. So my, my hot tub, I took that at about 5 PM when the lights kind of going down, I turned the hot tub light on. I turned the, I turned the lights to get that ambiance in the living room. I got that at, at the middle of the day to get all the light coming in. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I, I, I may or may not have a Airbnb rental I'm working with. We're paying, you know, some, some photographers, 150 bucks to come in that are related to the property management company. But if they only come in from like 2 to 4 p.m., they might not be getting the right uh, time of day and the the ambiance or the golden hour. Yep. Yep. And also, I'll just highlight this again in, cl- in case it wasn't clear. I made, But like staging is super important, is the most important thing. Like taking a, looking at it with your eyes, I'm looking at my living room here and there is a coffee table. And I specifically remember this coffee table in terms of taking photos because when I took a photo with that coffee table, the living room looked really um, cluttered. But in real life, it looks fine. So I took that coffee table out for the photo and the photo looked way better, way better. And so these photographers, they wouldn't do that. None of them would do that. And so it's also things like, you know, um, setting up setting up silverware on the table or not. A photographer's not going to do that. That's you. You will. That's part of staging. I have a plant over here to the right. Sometimes I put the plant next to the next to the couch to get some green in there. Sometimes I didn't, and I wanted to take both those photos to figure out which one looked better as a as a photo. These things are part of the reason which sets me apart from everyone else. Is I think my photos are uh, epic. There you go. So staging. Take your own photos, pricing, interior design. It's big. Seems like you could really like spiff up a unit big time just by, you know, like you look at the listings online on Airbnb and pretty much all of them, you you look at them and you say, these guys could be making so much more money if they just spiced it up a little bit and took better photos. Yes, I could. And the crazy thing is it's not hard. It's really not that hard. There's a lot of great Airbnb hosts out there. And going back to the example I just said, and we mentioned, like, what are the bad hosts doing? They're doing things like not providing scissors. You know, I'm going to leave them a five-star review because like, because of what I said earlier. But imagine if someone else was there and they didn't provide a blender. They didn't provide laundry detergent. They didn't provide scissors. They didn't provide anything for the oven. Um, you know, are they going to get a five-star review? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But these are such literally $75 in total to buy all of this stuff. And I bought, by the way, that the unit was, I think it was like $2,000. So it's not like I bought a cheap unit. It was like, you know, rather upper end. Mm-hmm. So these are the really simple mistakes that hosts are making that they're making it. Maybe they don't care, or maybe they just don't understand what the what the um, kind of the consensus, the general consensus is for a good Airbnb is. But, you know, with, so this is why there's so many opportunities in Airbnbs, even in markets that you would consider saturated is most of the hosts don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I have one random question. You know how on Airbnb, you're always kind of setting your range to like the bottom (laughs) one third or, 
for it. Like the, the bottom one third in terms of the cost basis on a per night or per month basis, right? And you're just like, okay, I'm in the bottom third. Like, let's see which one's the best value. And then you always look and you see the top third and it's like, you know, 15,000 a month, thousand bucks a night. Do people do that just to see if someone will book it? Or is it like realistic and there's actually activity going on an equivalent amount of activity at kind of the upper end of the, of this, of the spectrum? Well, you can look at the reviews, but in general, no, at the upper end of the spectrum, you have very wealthy folks who just kind of want to do this as a project or a hobby. And they're putting a ridiculous price on there. And they're just like, well, you know, I don't need the money, but if it rents for, you know, $2,500 a night, yeah, I'll take it. That's what, that's what the majority of those places are at. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so funny. It's like I almost want to get rich just so that I'm not on like the bottom one third of the Airbnb <laughs> uh, slider. Well, here's a tip for you. Go. Uh, I I look at I look at three three sections as well, like the t- the top half, and I I just email a few of those listings, and I say so. I look at the price. I I take out um, the fee. So I I, try, I convert the price to the local currency as well. So I'm I'm speaking with the host in terms of what the host is seeing on their end, and then I and then I I take forty percent off, and I have a message that I say I say hey you know I'm coming to town I'm on a bit of a budget like your place I'm a great guest you know I'm not here to party I don't smoke um, and then I give them a budget I, I give them my price okay it's um, you know. 8 million Colombian pesos. So I say, you know, I'm willing, you know, my budget is 6 million Colombian pesos. Now 40% is obviously a lot. So they're not going to, I don't think anyone's ever been like, oh, sure. But you set, you set the anchor. It's a term in psychology. You've, you've anchored it such a low price that if they're at all willing to accept a discount, well, maybe they give you a 20% discount, which is still, you know, probably pretty good on monthly, especially on monthly rentals. That's my, that's my hack there. And is that something you're doing only on uh, that top quadrant as like a Hail Mary? Or do you do that as a matter of course every single time you're booking your monthly rentals? No, you can do that. Um, I, I don't always do that uh, because if I do that, it adds an extra couple days onto the process because I have to right. wait and go back. But uh, when I do do it, it doesn't have to be the upper quadrant. It could be anything, anything at all. It works the same exact way. Just convert it to the local currency. So, uh, and and I do that too. I think a lot of people still aren't even aware that you can message a host and uh, request a discount, especially for long-term stays. So guys, you just basically kind of put in your date range and then you click contact host and say, hey, you know, a little bit out of my budget, but it looks great. Um, And then uh, you get a discount. Do you think there's any downside to hitting up like 10 hosts and just like seeing who who bites because i i've done i've done it kind of both ways where i have my one or two units that i really want and i just kind of message them but i feel like i don't have a good negotiating position and then there's other times where i'll just kind of as an experiment i'll just go ham and message like 15 20 hosts and just see who 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 hooks me up with like a sick discount yeah so the the strategy there is um 
what you, what you should do, it, it takes more time, but what you should do is you shouldn't ask, another strategy is not to ask for discount right away. Message the host, say, you know, you're interested in the place, you're coming, you know, you're, you've stayed 2,000 nights, you're not there to party, you just, you know, you're not ready to book, you just wanted to say hi, see if it's still available. Is it still available? You know, I know some listings are on Airbnb are active, but, but not active, are, are live, but not active. Then the host responds to you. Then you might ask them another question like, hey, by the way, what cross streets are you at? Or, hey, by the way, do you have a blender or a desk? Do you have a desk chair? Ask them a few questions um, over, over like a couple days. And then they're, they're, they're invested. They're, the host feels like they're more invested. So now you ask, you have a somewhat of a connection with them. So mm-hmm. now you ask them for a discount. And I find that works better for them to say yes. They, they're, not gonna, they're still not going to accept the 40% discount. But I do find the level of response and acceptance is higher in that with that strategy. I agree with you, but I wonder if it could almost be the opposite. And they'll be like, they might think, oh, this guy, Danny's pretty invested in this unit. We don't have to give him a discount. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, potentially. I mean, it's not like a hundred percent that it works. I'm just saying my, sometimes it could also, I thought you were going to say something different. It could also work differently where the host is like, oh, this bastard, you know, he just wanted a discount. He should have not wasted my time and, and just asked uh, me straight up. That could be, that's that's for sure going to happen a percentage of the time for sure. Yeah, I think when you get into that, uh, you know, asking on the third email thing, it kind of I mean that does take time. It's kind of like a mental mental thing, but yeah, it's kind of a, an exciting one where you where you message like ten hosts and then they're all like hitting you with these offers and you're yeah. just like, oh shit, should I like accept this one? Should I wait for a couple more coming in? It's like. <laughs> I message everyone. I, I I open up a bunch of tabs and then I message them all at the same time. And then yeah, I try. I come. I come back. Yeah, I come back the next day. So I'm not responding to them like real time unless I'm really in a in a hurry. So I'll come back the next day or like eight hours or twelve hours later because there are a lot of hosts with good listings who don't know what they're doing, who don't have automatic responses on, who have a day job, who are sleeping, whatever. And so I'll wait, yeah, 12 or 18 hours, and then I'll respond to everyone who's responded to me. And then I'll check the messages that weren't responded to just to make sure that those weren't like my, like my, you know, my really one that I actually really wanted, um, mm-hmm. that I may be able to instant book if I wanted to. Cause a lot of people, yeah, just don't even respond. They're like, it's instant book. I'm just instant book or not. They, they don't want to be bothered with it. Uh, that's how I'll do it. And then I'll do it for like typically two, two days, you know. Hey guys, quick interruption to tell you about bit refill. BitRefill is the best way to convert your crypto into gift card balances. These are gift cards that you can spend at Hotels.com, Airbnb, Nike, and many more. You may remember Joel Valenzuela, previous podcast guest. He's been living on crypto exclusively since 2015, and he's a big consumer of BitRefill. And so I asked Joel, I said, what do you like most about BitRefill? He said that he likes the instant delivery the precise amount so that you don't have to juggle a lot of gift cards. And he loves the global selection. Nobody else has this much selection of gift cards, over 10,000 gift card options across hundreds of countries. Go to bitrefill.com to sign up. And you can also use the code MyLatinLife for 10% back off your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that location and you know how it's like approximate, do you ask them for specific locations and try to like street view it and like really get into the weeds or you're just like, ah, this is good enough. This is basically in the zone I want. 
I used to ask um, for cross streets because there's been a couple times where I got burned. Um, so I used to ask for cross streets and sometimes I still do that, especially if there's a specific place I want to be like here in, Med- in Medellin, I want to be within a 10 minute walk of Parque Chiras. And I booked a place here once and it was like a 20 minute walk, which might not sound like that much, but you know, an extra 10 minutes going there three or four times a day. And also it was on a hill. It was on a hill. So I was a little bit sweaty coming back. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that was like, uh, kind of shitty. So Sometimes I do ask for cross streets. Yeah. Especially if I'm like super familiar and, and really know exactly where I want to stay. That could come in handy. Mm-hmm. Do you ever help people uh, book Airbnbs for them? Do you think there's kind of a market for like a, a concierge service? There wouldn't be enough money in that for me to do that. I, I don't know if there's a, I can't imagine how much someone would pay for that. But I do yeah. get people messaging me like, can you recommend me an Airbnb or like, what's the best Airbnb? Like th- th- for, for me, they're like crazy questions. Cause I'm like, well, what do you mean? Just go on Airbnb and find yourself. But <laughs> there is a, I guess there is a market who they just, they don't know technology or they don't know the platform or they think like I have some insider secrets or something. I'm not really sure what it is, but the questions seem strange to me. I've never asked like, wait, why are you asking me? Um, you know, where would I stay? Just go on Airbnb and figure it out yourself. Because I find that I, I do have people ask me this a little bit. They want me to help them with trip planning, but also just in my kind of personal life, whenever I try to travel with people, I've had uh, I've had it where I'd say, look, I, I've had people that I've traveled with for like multiple months. And I'd say, look, I booked the past like six Airbnbs. Can you, can you book the next one? And then uh, they'll be like, yeah, 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 I can do it this time. And then they'll be sending me like the weirdest locate and like everything they send me will be wrong i'll be like no like this location is wrong (laughs) like there's some red flags here there's not even a desk blah 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 and so people it's weird it's like people don't know how to book it right and i almost i don't have confidence in letting someone else do it that's traveling with me that's a fair point you know there's things that i and you have learned to look for like you know where's the desk how does a desk chair look that window is closed is that window closed? Probably not because it has a great view. Um, what, where, you know, where's the blender in the kitchen? So the layout of the house. Yeah, I can see that for sure. But again, I don't know how, how much you think someone would pay for that. Yeah, I don't know. Even if it was like 250 bucks and it takes you a half hour or something, I mean, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> oh, I don't think someone's going to pay that. I mean, I would do it for that. <laughs> that's yeah. a $500 hourly rate. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I don't know. You never thought about like launching a service like that. Just be like concierge booking. Just be like, type in, type in your price range. You know, maybe they have to give you their credit card somehow. And then it's like, I will book it. Give me your date range. Give me your price range. It's like, yeah, it could be, it could be, it could be very automated, right? Where it's just like, give me your date range, give me your price range. And I will book the best possible thing within those constraints. Yeah. They have that on flights as well. And I, and I have used that. So I've never, it's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about on my personal blog, I ha, I write a lot. And one of those is about like Airbnb booking Airbnbs. And I recently decided that I'm going to try and monetize it. And I'm going to try and um, add some sort like in my, I have a gym, uh, like, you know, how to meet girls at the gym. And I was going to like put like a PDF. Hey, if you want to pay this for the PDF, here's my like insider secrets or, mm-hmm. 
on like how to write a book, you know, if you want to consult call with me, you know, here's this. So I might try that as well. Put it on the blog, my Airbnb blog. Hey, if you want me to book your Airbnb for you, you know, send me this form. Could be an interesting, just kind of a, kind of a hobby pastime. Test out yeah, the market. Because the, the Airbnb is a thing and it, it is a little bit one of those things that people don't realize they need, but they definitely need. But and then there's kind of a larger thing where maybe you get a lot of messages like this as well, where people want someone to hold their hand their first time in Latin America or their first time in Medellin, right? Where they say, like, wouldn't it be cool if like I could have someone to basically be like my tour guide and show me around? Uh, but not like a lame tour guide, but like a real like cool guy who could maybe get me some restaurant recommendations, tell me what nightclub to go to, maybe, uh, like figure out a couple things for me and kind of be like, a I don't even know what you call it, but just like on the ground concierge for, for first time digital nomads. I've had a lot of people ask me for something like that. Yeah, well, I part part of what I offer for the Belmonte Penthouse is a concierge, a fluent English-speaking concierge to all my guests. And if they want to pay extra, this guy will be with them the full time here. But if not, they can just ask him different questions. Can you book us? I always find this strange as well. Like someone's like, "Can you book me a rest a reservation at this restaurant?" And it's like, "Well, okay, that's cool." I mean, I think maybe it's like you know you feel fancy if someone else does it for you, but like you could just literally just call. Everything is done on WhatsApp here. So I think that's definitely a service that, that my yeah. guests value a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I recently stayed at a, an Airbnb and it had, it was like a mansion. Um, and we had a bunch of our buddies there and it had like an on-site, uh, basically like concierge guy. It was like this big fat guy that lived in like the building connected to it next door. Yeah. And, um, he'd come, he, he, he would get us our, uh, our big jugs of water and he could help uh, do like little errands and groceries and he'd organize and meet the cleaner or, or, or stuff like that. And it, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool service to have. Yep. Yeah, there's some of those here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's two things. There's like, there's like a concierge attached to the Airbnb itself who can just kind of help with like household things. But then there's like a, I don't know, almost like a cool guy in the city concierge where you know, he can kind of tell you like the do's and don'ts of Medellin, how to, how to move and kind of just make sure you have a better experience because the difference between a bunch of guys coming down from New York city and they don't have any idea what they're doing and they just do like kind of the most obvious things versus if they had like a real kind of insider, um, you know, kind of crafting their experience, they'd have a very different experience. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I have, I have this idea that kind of sounds like what you're saying, and I would love to like start it, but it's a it's a huge project. It's called um, like local local companion, where, yes. yeah, what I'm envisioning is like there's an app, and there's there's these locals on the app who are specialized in neighborhoods and you know nightlife or food or events or some music, and of someone coming to the town can submit a question. Hey, what's, you know, I'm looking for a sports bar in this neighborhood. And then that they can tell them, or, you know, you're in a city in the USA. Can I park here? Here's the sign, you know, here's the parking sign. Can I park here? Or um, I remember even random questions. Like I was in, I think I was in uh, Vietnam and they don't do sliced bread there. Or maybe I couldn't find like sourdough (laughs) bread. 
one of those two. And so yeah. I would love to ask like a local companion, Hey, I'm looking for sourdough bread. Uh, you know, how, where do I find it? And I'm sure I could find it someone and someone would know like, Oh, there, go there. That would be a cool, very cool app. I think. Yeah. Dentists. Um, people want all these random services, by the way, sourdough bread. Uh, I've had, uh, Jake Nomada mentioned that he, he tries to find sourdough bread everywhere he goes. Is there, is there something behind that? Well, yes. Uh, I don't know for him, but pr- probably it's similar. I met him or rather similar. Um, sourdough bread is going to be the least processed. It takes like a day and a half for the, for the, um, the yeast to rise. And mm-hmm. so it's like, it's more of a healthy type bread. It's the bread. It's like the first type of bread we started making as, as humans. Okay. It's like more Jesus. easily digestible. <laughs> yeah. Jesus bread. It always Jesus comes in that. <laughs> okay. Good aside. I guess when we're doing shout outs, um, Sam Miller finally responded to me when I said, uh, Hey, I'm talking to Danny. What should I, uh, ask him about you? You, are you ready for his, uh, Oh, well, it's, it's very underwhelming. I said, recording a pod with Danny tomorrow. What questions <laughs> okay. should we ask him? And he responded, how to find and make profitable Airbnbs. <laughs> yeah, so, I guess like, that's yeah. what I'm, <laughs> I guess that's what I'm known for mostly nowadays, huh? <laughs> yeah. How long, how long have you known Sam, by the way? And, and again, for the audience, uh, Sam Miller, uh, previous podcast guest. I think he was also like episode four, five, six, one of those. And we'll have to get him on again for round two. But how, how long you known Sam for? Um, I think I met him the first time in like 2019. And I think I met him because I, I saw some of his YouTube videos and I may have reached out to him then. And then we maybe met up something like that or at a, at a, at a gringo event in the gringo vortex zone, something like that. <laughs> It's been three or four years, so. And now you guys are like Medellin Airbnb buddies or uh, Latam real estate buddies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He moved on to Tulum. I'm still in Medellin for the time being. And what's his deal? He's he's kind of almost um, contracting himself out to different projects around Latin America, uh, wherever there's, I guess, a big development and being like, you know, I, I can help you market it and we'll make it um, very, um, I know he's all about kind of incorporating nature into the development. And so it's kind of like, what's the term I'm thinking of? But, but yeah. Well, you, I think you got to ask him that. Um, but because I, I actually don't know exactly what he's doing, but I do know there's some things he's doing and I don't know it how, how, how private they are. He's got, he does have some programs going on related to real estate projects in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Pretty exciting stuff. You don't have to reveal, but um, I know there was, um, I'm not sure how much I should say either, but he, you know how there was that group he was trying to get off the ground and I guess he's kind of pivoted a little bit. Um, But I'm, I'm really bullish on what he's trying to do in terms of like turnkey, uh, turnkey lifestyle investments in Latin America. I think that's like the best approach where um, people probably want to use them a little bit, but also rent them out, that kind of thing. Yeah. So for anyone who's not familiar or who didn't watch that episode, listen to that episode, he, Sam started a 
company here and I, and I, I won't name it by name, but he started a real estate like company here in Colombia. He, he, he was stayed in Colombia for like, he, like 13 years, something crazy like that. And it was exactly like that. It was like real estate investments, lifestyle investments, um, and international foreign investments in real estate. And so, uh, something happened with that firm and he went, uh, he's doing something else now. So he's like, he's in the phase now, as I understand of finding that next step. And so he's exploring a few different avenues. Mm-hmm. He seems to be pretty close to kind of, uh, kind of at the end of the exploration phase. And I get the vibe that he's like, he knows what he wants to do now. Well, yeah, he definitely knows to a great extent what he wants to do. I mean, real estate, lifestyle investments, passive investments, Latin America, for sure. And I, I think the turnkey thing is huge. Um, cause I think, um, no, like I think everyone is down to invest in Latin America, especially if it could come with a residency permit or something. But nobody wants the headache of uh, having to speak Spanish and deal with you know the red tape or the the day to day operations of it. And I noticed that there's kind of a lack of short, uh, sorry, a lack of turnkey opportunities on the market where maybe you can buy into uh, buy into an investment. But then there's already, you know, a, a property manager set up and they just really have everything kind of dialed in and all they need is the capital. I think, I think opportunities like that are going to be huge. I, I agree. And I think they'll be even bigger if the world opens up more and travel becomes more um, easy and, and affordable. You know, there's some things down the road that I've heard about for years now, but like, you know, like even people are developing um, flights that go into out, outer space, uh, well, inner space, I don't know, but they actually use the orbit. And so they turn mm-hmm. off their gas and they use the earth spin. And, you know, you can, <laughs> you can get to like London in 45 minutes or something. And it's the same price as air transport now. So those are been pretty exciting. Um, yeah. Electric planes are also something that I read maybe on Twitter somewhere where it's like potential to have an electric plane. So there's, there's some cool things coming down the pipeline. I, I definitely have this uh, idea that, you know, right now to fly to Brazil, it's, you know, like 15 hours in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like seven, eight hours from Panama, um, et cetera. And then, but what's going to happen to the real estate market in these countries when that flight time is cut in half? Or even what you're saying, it takes, you know, two hours to get to Brazil. And because they have the best beaches in the world. You know what I mean? And, and so much amazing stuff. And it's very under touristed just because it's so far and people say, you know what, I'm just going to go to Colombia. I'm just going to go to Playa. Like Brazil is just too damn far. Um, but I think as flights get shorter, it really kind of, you know, the world gets smaller. And I think, uh, that could be bullish for, for real estate. That's just like a little bit too far for the average gringo right now. Yep. Yeah. I think it would increase the, 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 the future world you're envisioning, I think, was increased tourism for sure, but not necessarily increase people's interest with learning Portuguese or really <laughs> getting that culture. So these deals, these deals where they're passive investments are that's where they but but you know, someone could go down there, okay, now I could go down six, eight times a year because it's only a three hour trip. Now they're interested in, you know, put, they have capital to put into real estate. So that's where these deals, these la- passive lifestyle investment type deals can can take off. There's definitely some potential there. Yeah, definitely two different things. I wouldn't base uh, 
I wouldn't base my investing on uh, electric planes coming anytime soon. But um, <laughs> but I, I do think long term, I'm like, if Brazil gets closer, like it's going to be a whole different story. But it's kind of a different thing than the the just talking about short term rentals. But yeah, it, it makes sense a lot of place. You know, you want to. I think a lot of people want to live a, a trifecta life or a, like a snowbird life, and maybe do you know do do uh, summers in in San Francisco or New York or Toronto, and then do winters in Latin America, and they might want to have that place that they could that they can own and and rent out when they're not there, and they just need something a little bit more turnkey. Again, the book Profitable Properties really excited that you put out the second book. By the way, I know we were we going to mention it or are we not going to mention it that you actually have like two or three other like secret books? I have. Yeah, this is my fourth. Um, this is my fourth book. My second, I wrote a second and third book in 2019. And the first one is about, it's, it's, it's about learning languages, but it's more so like a toolbox. I identify a, um, an efficient strategy to learn languages, really to learn anything. But I identify efficient strategy and then a bunch of like tools and apps and strategies to increase your ability to write, listen, read, etc. That one is called Zilch to Conversational. You can find them also on my author profile. You can just like click the author name on Amazon and that'll mm -hmm. bring up my author page, which has the books. The other one is called For Travelers, Not Tourists. And it is, it's a book about traveling, obviously, and it helps you find where in the world is best for you based on who you are, based on your own criteria. And I kind of walk you through my process and how I develop my criteria. Mm. And then also I give you ideas on how to connect with your location. I talk about different neighborhoods and how to find events and meet people. You know, it's there. These two books are more of guides. They're like, I don't know, 90 pages, hundred pages. They're short, shorter guides. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I feel like the for travelers, not tourists, is a lot of what we've uh, been talking about. Is it the same kind of criteria that you use, like your your ten twenty point system? Well, in that book, I give my I give my process, my system, and but but I also lay out like, but you know, this is my system. So your your system might be different. You know, if you really like, for example, museums, let's say, then your criteria might be well, what what you know, you, you might do a research online to figure out what cities have the best museums and at what times and exhibits and things like that. So just have one, one quick example. But I also talk about pretty specifically about like, you know, how choosing the micro neighborhood, which is what we talked about. Not just like a neighborhood like Poblado yes. here in Medellin. Poblado is a rather big neighborhood. There's walkable parts and there's not walkable parts. So choosing the, the micro neighborhood is actually um, even more important. Talk about what to bring, you know, what to do before arrival. Yeah. You should write another little book called Micro Neighborhoods and kind of like flesh out that concept. I think that'd be cool. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned it in the profitable properties as well in terms of investing, because I also think in terms of investing, micro neighborhood is more important. And I even highlight a dude who's doing mm -hmm. rental arbitrage here who has a similarly looking Airbnb in the same neighborhood, Poblado. He has five bedrooms. He's got a hot tub just like me. Um, but he's making one third of what I'm making. And I believe it's because of his micro neighborhood. He's 15 minute drive from Parque Jetas. I'm a five minute walk. That's exactly what we've been talking about. 
Yeah. And it's the, you know, our guests, they, that our guests don't want to be 15 minute walk, they 15 minute drive. They want to be five minute walk. They, they very, very specifically, that's like, I believed that was a high criteria on new guests coming to the city and new guests really don't know the prices exactly as well. So they, you know, they think it's cheap, but it's actually kind of expensive for this area. So that was my, my specific clientele, FPG, I call them future potential guest, but it all comes down to that micro neighborhood. Yes, yes. The micro neighborhood, definitely a big takeaway from the episode. Um, sick, man. Uh, well, yeah, let's get to to wrapping up and feel free to share uh, again the book with the audience and, and anywhere that you want to direct the audience. You can find me, my personal, I have two personas online. My personal persona is called Danny Boo Boo, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, my, my personal blog. And then my professional, if you're more of a, if you're more interested in investing and in, in, uh, short-term rental investing, then optimize my Airbnb. You could do a Google search there, and you'll find the same things all under that name: Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, website. Sick man. Well, always good catching up with you, Danny. Um, yeah, thank you so much for for you know dropping the knowledge on us today regarding Airbnbs. And we're all super looking forward to reading Profitable Properties. Link is in the description as well. Yeah, man. Right on. I'm going to have to come out to Panama. I'll hit you up when I do. I have, it's been three years now since I've been there. But I've heard I've been hearing it come up more and more. Could be a good Airbnb spot. Lots of uh, through traffic here. Lots of potential. Direct flights from a lot, of, a lot more areas than Colombia. Mm-hmm. Or we'll talk offline about maybe doing something in Asia this summer. But uh, thanks again, Danny Boo Boo, Daniel Rustin, legend. Till next time, happy hosting. Nice.